A huge welcome from me. I'm so thrilled to be sharing this morning. Why? Because I love this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in scripture and it's both deeply comforting but also in your face challenging. A couple of weeks back we looked at the first public statement of Jesus together from our passage in Matthew or, or linked rather to our passage in Matthew where Jesus in the Gospel of Luke opens up a scroll and says the spirit of the sovereign Lord has anointed me to bring good news for the poor to bring freedom for prisoners release for the oppressed and to give sight to the blind and as we read today's scriptures and in fact as I read them in my preparation I was so aware of the weight of the spirit of God for immediate application yes but also for long-term impact for the storms that we will face post-covid post-covid is not suddenly back to normal we are facing a whole tsunami of storms maybe we'll talk about that on another sunday but we may well need the helpful perspective that these scriptures will bring today's passage will comfort you right now if you are struggling financially and it will bring freedom and release and maybe for many of us who unbeknown to us have been deceived by money by possessions by clothing so much that we're blind to the impact of their presence in our lives let's read the first couple of verses and i want to show you something you haven't seen in a while <laughs> can you guess what it is here it is it's a bible yes i know like everybody else i mostly use tablet and iphone but i really wanted to read from my niv today here's the first few verses matthew 6 19 to 21 do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but instead therefore store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for <coughs> Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I want to pray right now. Father, would you let the Spirit of God take the words of Jesus and so sow them into our hearts that we tenderize our hearts and open our lives to the challenge and the comfort from those words. May it reach every one of our hearts today. Amen. Three points today. The first point is a question. Where's your treasure? These verses set our sights on heaven, don't they? And in the book of Matthew, 31 times Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. It's where he wants our gaze, where he wants our priorities, where he wants our focus. Mark only mentions it once and it doesn't seem to appear in the other gospels. So whilst there is a taste of heaven here and now, Jesus is crystal clear. It is heaven that is eternal and earth is temporary. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. We are to pray, not for God's will to be done in heaven, but rather 
to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus talked about reward in heaven and he talks here about treasure in heaven. And what he's describing here is an intentional investment that makes a difference, an eternal difference. And he is intentionally contrasting earth and heaven, light and darkness when it comes to money, because the contrast is mission critical to living life in God's way on his earth. And Jesus in this passage is unequivocal. He wants our gaze on heaven, our focus on heaven, our priorities tuned by heaven. One of the great misconceptions is that you and I can't take anything with us when we die. In fact, there's a verse that implies that. But the truth is rather different. Every one of us can take something with us when we leave this earth. And in fact, we determine our ultimate experience of heaven based on the things we do on earth. We take that investment with us into heaven, along with relationships we have formed. And here, as elsewhere, Jesus is making it clear what we do on earth matters. My service matters. My attitudes matter. My relationships matter. And my treasure matters. Precisely because this earth is not all there is, and precisely because death is not the end of all that's good in this world. It's the next step into eternal life that will continue increasing and expanding without end. Jesus is giving us a prescription before he goes on in a moment to describe in full the problem. And this prescription helps us handle worry, it helps us handle money, it helps us handle possessions, and it helps us handle covetousness. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When each of our kids was around the age of 12, I took them to another country for a memorable, impacting experience that was supposed to be lasting and was supposed to be impacting, was supposed to be different. And it was different for each of them. When Joel came with me to Kenya, one of the most impacting experiences of the trip, and in his life, he told me later, was on a train from Nairobi to Mombasa. Joel had learned before we left that in many villages, rural communities, children couldn't go to school at that time if they didn't have a pencil. So we took hundreds of pencils with us, and every time the train came to a halt, kids would come running up to the side of the train and Joel would throw out pencils. Sometimes it would be scores of kids, occasionally hundreds of kids, and the disappointment on his face when we ran out of pencils for the kids who were desperate to get their gift was lasting as an impression on me. Joel was deeply impacted by this moment in his life. For the rest of his life, this experience would be present in his thinking his praying, his planning, in his teenage years, in his 20s, and still in his 30s. He went on to say in his 30s, Dad, I want an experience like Moses and the burning bush. I want God to meet me with his calling on my life. A few years later, when he was trying to complete his theological degree, his thesis was around the passage in the Bible which talks about suffering children to come to Jesus. And there was something about that scripture which gripped him. He read every commentary he could find. He read everything else he could lay his hands on, but he could not get his brain around or his heart fully around understanding the scripture again. From the lips and the pen of Matthew 
Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Why? For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Here again, Matthew gives us the emphasis of Jesus on heaven. Now, its impact was irrepressible and coupled with that 12-year-old encounter with children and pencils, it so gripped him that he left his theological degree and focused his energy on what was called Sunshine Corner, a little group of children and teenagers from deprived backgrounds in a town called Bishop Auckland in the northeast of England. I could sense that this actually was his unexpected version of a burning bush moment. And one of our friends, Bev Jones, painted a kind of commissioning picture, which you see on screen for now. And that's how real it was for him. Not long after that, as many of you will know, Joel had a traumatic, brutal fight with cancer at the age of 38. And during the last ultra painful days, with deeply difficult conversations for him and for us, we were talking about some of these things, trying to prepare for what was going to happen. And in my mind was, I have to know what Joel wants for his legacy, his business, which was a profitable, successful, leading edge tech company that he built from scratch and he and I'd worked in together. So I began to talk about his legacy in the business and he stopped me very firmly. He was in a great deal of pain, so the conversation was doubly difficult and somehow doubly important. I began to well up, desperately trying to control my own emotions, but he was strong and clear. And he said, Dad, I don't care about the business like that. The business is not my legacy. It's been a provision. And yes, it's the people in the business who are part of my legacy. But he made it clear his real legacy was these young people in Sunshine Corner. That was his treasure in heaven. That was what had gripped his life. That was where his focus in God and his priorities in God were. Not the money, not the successful, rapidly growing, substantially profitable business, but treasure in heaven. Those young people were treasure in heaven. And his priority was most definitely in the right place. So the first question to ask ourselves from this scripture is, where is your focus? Where is mine? Where is our gaze? Where is our treasure? I asked a question of many of you some years back in a talk on heaven at Hub. Do you long to go to heaven, but are willing to stay? Or are you willing to go, but if you're honest, you're longing to stay? If you and I are not longing to go, it's likely that somehow or other, some way or other, our real treasure is earthbound. Family, jobs, money, holidays, cars, clothing. What kind of blindness is it that we focus so much of our lives, maybe if we're blessed on average 70 years, we focus on money and what it buys. We spreadsheet and plan, we calculate, we save, we risk and record. It's as if we're investing everything into a poultry footstool where we can invest into the throne. I'm going to risk something with you. I want to sing a song and I want, if God will help me, for the spirit to touch you. Join me if you know the song. You are Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, Lord of all that ever shall be, 
Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, Lord of all that is to come. What might it mean to you to store up treasure in heaven instead of on earth? What might the Lord of heaven be prompting in your heart or mind right now? Could I encourage you to let your heart soften and yield so that your gaze, your priorities, your focus are on heaven? The second batch of verses the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Have you never wondered or ever wondered why that verse is right here, followed by this? No man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So point number two is money, the impossible outcome. We talked about the scripture comforting and challenging, and here comes the full-on challenge. Fascinating to me, I saw it freshly preparing for today. It talks about light and darkness in the eye, in the context of money. And I think Jesus is pointing to the desire for other things as he describes it in the parable of the sower. Covetousness comes through the eye gate and it's all the way back to the Ten Commandments, if you will. Elsewhere, Jesus makes it clear a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Marketing machines now with the help of AI blast our senses like no generation before us to insist that unless we buy this or that, unless we eat this or that, unless we drink this or that, unless we have this or that, we will never be happy. It's a lie. It's a sinister deception that has 17% of the UK on antidepressants. Having more money never makes the real difference that it promises. When you get more, guess what happens? You want more. This is folly, this is sinister, and this is not the kingdom of heaven. Coveting the house, the clothes, the income is a sinister trap that binds up and oppresses and blinds and captures hearts, leading them unaware into darkness. And with strong, unequivocal language, Jesus says you cannot serve money and God. Not it's difficult, but it's impossible, can't be done. With the rich young ruler, Jesus said to this God-fearing man, by the way, one thing you lack, go sell all you have, give to the poor, then come follow me. He went away sorrowful. Why? Because money had a grip of his heart that was stronger than his desire to follow Jesus, stronger than his view of treasure in heaven. Early on in my married life, Dave Rebet's dad, Brian, was my employer. He was also an outstanding mentor. He was an extraordinary boss. He opened his life and his office to me. I literally shared an office with the boss in the days when it was all about having your own office. And the bigger your own office was, the better you were deemed to be. Not so with Brian. 
It was shared from day one. He would listen to my sales calls and encourage, tweak, and occasionally challenge. But it was life mentoring, not just work coaching. One day he said to me very earnestly, David, you have a problem with a love of money. It stung and it stung hard. I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to excuse myself. And I took it to heart. And amongst other things, I sought God. And I felt at the time I should set an income level and give away 50% of everything above that threshold. And for nearly two years, I was angry. It made me angry. I lost my motivation to work. I lost the joy that I used to have at work. I was angry somehow God was forcing me to have less. My time was being devalued. My work was being devalued. What did all that reveal? It was a true mirror, a reflection deep into my heart that showed a deep, deep love of money. Have I changed? Maybe a bit but it still lurks in me like a perennial weed that every now and then needs rooting out again. Let me share a question I have asked in large auditoriums at big events and small intimate events with leaders nationally, locally, internationally. The answer, shockingly, has been consistently the same. I've had people shocked with me. I've had people get cross with me afterwards and express it. And my question is usually along these lines. Listen carefully. Here's the question. How many of you would like to be rich? Would you be kind enough to put up your hands, I ask. Over decades, around 70%, up to 90% or more, of all auditoriums, large, small, intimate, massive, 70 to 90% of all hands got raised. And I wonder if you would have raised your hand. Reflect on that for a moment. I then explained that according to 1 Timothy, everyone who just raised their hands is on a seven-step slide to destruction. You can see why they got cross with me, can't you? I found this quite shocking. Here's what Timothy said. Remember, my question was, how many of you would like to be rich? Here's what Timothy says, 1 Timothy 6. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs don't love money it's after you it's predatory. It wants to rob your gaze. It wants to drive you for more. It wants to trap you into covetousness. It wants to rob your focus and your priorities. It's a despicable master. In a non-Christian setting, when I've done stress-busting seminars, keynotes, or work-life balance keynotes, I use another question. It's not so in your face, but listen carefully to this question and maybe reflect on it over the week. I say to the auditorium, I say to my delegates, what's more important to you, I say, time or money? 
I've had all kinds of responses to that question. Usually a hush comes over the auditorium. You'll see one or two begin to tear up. Maybe occasionally you'll see one or two shed tears because the question itself has opened previously blinded eyes. And I wonder what your instinctive answer is or was just now. If you're like most people, I said to you, what's more important, time or money? And you will say, time. And my response is always the same. How come then you spend time to get money? And how rarely, if ever, do you spend money to buy time? Can I ask you, honestly, as I ask myself freshly today, is money Lord or is Jesus? Honestly now. And how would you know? Maybe you and I could ask him this week and allow the word of Jesus to do its work. And the comfort. Verses 25 to 34. It's a few verses, but let the word of God do its work. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire or outside my office door right now, bundled up into haylage, will you... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What a fantastic life coach Jesus is. If we have the first two issues sorted, here comes the comfort. Don't worry. Like many of you, I'm sure I've had the daunting privilege, the dubious privilege of witnessing real poverty many times in my life. I'll never forget one visit to Zimbabwe at a time of huge inflation and food shortage. I was in Harare with my host and a bread vendor was seen driving a van through an area where my host and I were watching. There was a long line waiting and I suppose in some kind of self-regulatory rationing, the driver sold a few loaves, then started driving off. A tall, very thin, emaciated man saw the van leaving and a loud cry or wail of despair came out of his anguished soul. Carrying somehow shockingly loud and strong on the sultry, subdued air, he started running after the van, crying out. His body was racked with some kind of hacking cough, which 
replaced his cries and his long legs were pumping up and down in huge strides to try and catch the van. He never made it. He gave up despairing and exhausted and disappeared somewhere into one of the streets. I was stunned into a kind of state of shock and disbelief. And over the years, we worked with our Salt and Light family, sometimes as Hub Church, with faith ministries in Zimbabwe to help with food and medicines. However, none of that good as it might be has ever let me forget that poor man striving, I imagine, simply to get bread for his family. We see these things on telly in our own experience and things like pencils thrown to children and we resolve it will change us. It's so easy to forget these moments, isn't it? Jill and I, perhaps like some of you, have had our anxious moments, particularly early on during COVID, around shopping, social distancing and being able to get online shopping. I worked myself up into a lather of angst over Sainsbury's online login for over a month. We couldn't get on. We kept trying to get the account reinstated hours on the phone and no one seemed able to do it. To my shame, I was regaling to my son Josh the issue, bemoaning the terrible service and how stressful it had become. He challenged me and said, Dad, that is a pathetic first world problem. And he was right. Don't worry. In Jeremiah 33, God makes it clear he has established his covenant with day and night, and what he calls the fixed laws of heaven. What that means is that God is covenanted to continue with the marvelous provision of 24-hour days, and he will never change them this side of eternity. That is a marvelous insight into how important it is to God as well as to us. And our passage today is Jesus leaning on the provision of those 24-hour days, who then says in verse 34, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own, and we'd all agree with that. God can't help us face tomorrow's worries. Think about that, because he's commanded us not to worry about tomorrow. So if we worry about tomorrow, we're on our own. No peace, no joy, no God. We're on our own. I want to try an experiment. Bear with me. Let's see if this works. It's as if we each have a jug with enough capacity to handle today's issues, today's challenges, today's worries. And as long as we keep our focus on God, we can handle anything today throws at us. Even if today empties itself on us, we've still got enough capacity in God. He promised it. But... You try and handle tomorrow ahead of time. Here's tomorrow. You know what's about to happen, don't you? But anyway, we're worrying about tomorrow. And the minute you start adding tomorrow's worries, look what happens. It's overload. Don't do it. I can handle whatever today pours in. It's a promise. He's made us, designed us, created us to operate in 24-hour days, just like the solar system into which he's placed us. If I worry about tomorrow, I overfill the jug. We could all handle today. Here's a poem as I begin to conclude. I think it was written by Mike Hollow. He can't remember, but in any event, he's given me permission to use it. I was regretting the past and fearing the future. Suddenly, my Lord was speaking. 
My name is I am. He paused. I waited. He continued. When you live in the past with its mistakes and regrets, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not I was. When you live in the future with its problems and fears, it is hard. I am not there. My name is not will be. When you live in this moment, it is not hard. I am here. My name is I am. Let me conclude. Is your treasure in heaven or on earth? Have you fallen under the spell of the money trap? What will you do or change in the light of that? And be comforted, whatever your financial situation. Don't worry about money, food, drink or clothes. We have enough faith, Jesus promised, to handle every new 24-hour day. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. God bless you. Thank you for listening to me today. It's been a privilege sharing these scriptures.